Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details. Music syncs, synchronization of a song with a visual medium like a film or TV show, have long been a powerful tool for exposure. There's Lizzo's Truth Hurts, which you may remember from the Netflix movie Someone Great, or Apple's use of U2's Vertigo for an iPod ad. And the phrase, How to Save a Life, may forever be linked to Grey's Anatomy. These songs not only made for big movie and TV moments, but found continued life after the peak of the projects that featured them had passed. Which brings us to Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, which was released in 1985 and ends 2022 as the 12th most consumed song of the year. How did this song end up sitting alongside hits by Drake and Dua Lipa 37 years after its original release? Well, Stranger Things happened, season four specifically, which used Running Up That Hill as a musical theme connecting to the character Max. The road to clearing the song's use on the Netflix hit was a long one, and started with convincing the elusive Kate Bush to agree to its use. Sony Music Publishing's Vice President of Creative, Amy Coles, takes us through the process of a successful sync and explains the unique role she plays in the Music for Screens ecosystem. This episode coincides with Variety's annual Hitmakers issue, which highlights the biggest songs of the year, another of which was Lizzo's About Damn Time, produced by our second guest, Grammy-winning producer and entrepreneur Ricky Reed. Ricky sat with Variety's deputy music editor Jem Oswad in his recording studio in Los Angeles, taking him through the musical elements that served as the building blocks to the song, which not only marked Lizzo's return to the top of the pop charts, but the world's return to living after COVID. Sony Music Publishing is changing the narrative on songwriter support. Songwriter Assistance is a new program that provides Sony Music Publishing's global roster of songwriters and composers with access to free, confidential counseling services and wellness resources. 
The program offers 24-7 support with global hotlines, as well as ongoing counseling for emotional health matters such as stress, anxiety, depression, and family and relationship challenges. If you are a Sony Music Publishing songwriter and would like to learn more, please visit sonymusicpub.com. Welcome back to Strictly Business. Here's my conversation with Sony Music Publishing's Amy Coles. So this is a special episode that we're doing in partnership with Sony Music Publishing to celebrate Variety's Hitmakers issue. This is our franchise issue at the end of the year where we look at the most consumed songs of the year and we really drill down on who is responsible for making this a hit and for breaking it. And we're very happy and proud to name you, Amy Coles, our guest here today, our hit breaker of the year. And this is an award that we give to someone who really made a key decision that helped catapult a song. And this song is, of course, Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, which I never in a million years thought I would be talking about in 2022. So congrats, Amy, and welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I want to just give our audience a little bit of an idea of what you do, because I'm not sure that people are familiar with the sync world, with song placements, with the world of sort of like intersecting visual media and music. So it seems like a lot of people who go into TV and film sync roles either happened into it, like it was like your first job in the music industry, or like you've always wanted to do this, but otherwise people don't really know about this world of sync when they start out. So tell me a little bit about sort of like the beginnings of your career and how you got into this specific line of work. Yeah, I think you're right. This is a very niche area of the industry that a lot of people aren't even aware that this job exists. I guess I fall into the category of kind of falling into this area of the business. So as I was looking into colleges, I came across USC's music industry program, and it kind of had everything I wanted and the best of both worlds, where I was able to study vocal arts and music performance and music theory, and also learn all about the business. So there were classes in music law, putting on a live event, management, and music sync music for film and television. So that was kind of my first introduction into that world was one of the classes that we all took was a sync class and learning about publishing, learning about the labels and learning about clearing a song for film and TV. And then it was kind of just luck. I did a couple different internships and one of them was over at Lionsgate in their music department. And we were reaching out to the labels and the publishers to clear songs for Lionsgate's film productions. And I found I really liked it. And I ended up at Sony on the label side doing primarily film. And then 12 years ago, started here at Sony Music Publishing, working mostly with television and clearing music for television. And I've been here ever since. So I think I found my little niche of the world that I like. Awesome. And we should just clarify. So being on the recorded music side is like the songs get made and the label is pushing it out as part of a campaign for an album or for a project, for a tour. And that's the job of the label person is to just find those opportunities to put it out there, to sync the song. And on the publishing side, it's a little bit different, right? Can you sort of explain the nuance? Yeah, it is a little bit different. I found on the label side, we were often being asked to push singles or new songs that were coming up and an artist hit song that everybody knows and find a placement for that. 
And in publishing, I find that it's a little bit more open where we find other opportunities for catalog songs, other areas of an artist's catalog. And also with publishing, the song is always used. The composition is always used. And that's not always the case at the label. They may not always use the artist's recording. It could be a cover. It could be an actor on screen singing it. Sometimes productions create their own new instrumental versions of a song, but they always need to clear the composition, which is what we do as a music publisher. You have a little bit more freedom and you have a wider catalog to get out into the world. I would almost equate it to like, if you go into a record store, thinking back to like back when there were record stores, you have all the shiny new albums, whether they're vinyl, CDs, whatever. And then on the bottom, you have the crates, right? And uh, those might be like 99 cent albums, but there may be a Stevie Wonder in the key of life in there. So it's kind of like that. It's like you have these treasures in the catalog. First of all, there are millions of them. I mean, Sony Music Publishing is a huge company, represents literally millions of songs. How does a running up that hill, that needle in the haystack, why that song? Let's talk about that song. Obviously, Stranger Things and its use in Stranger Things was really what catapulted it onto the charts for the first time since 1986, and it didn't climb that high when it was a current single. What came first? The show, the idea, the song? Tell me the story. I've been working with Nora Felder, the music supervisor on Stranger Things, for the past four seasons. And our creative team definitely sends her everything we have in our 80s catalog. Since it takes place in the 80s, she needs music authentic to what was actually released and available during that time. So yeah, we've been clearing songs for all four seasons of Stranger Things and have had some nice uses. But this one was really, really special. Nora came, approached us in 2020 about this idea she had for a really special song for one of the characters, Max. And it was a song that was going to motivate Max and get her through some really tough times. And she reached out to me and asked, what do you think about Kate Bush running up that hill? Like, do you think she'd approve it? And Kate is very thoughtful. She's very selective about what thinks she approves. So I wasn't sure what the answer was, but you know, all we can do is try. All we can do is ask. And this sync was different from some of the other straightforward ones where it's just, it's one use. Usually the production will send us a scene description of what's happening while the song plays and we'll take that to management or the writer themselves. And in this case, a lot of it was unknown because they were just kind of early. A couple scripts had been written, but the whole season hadn't been written yet. They wanted to make sure that they would be able to carry this song throughout the season and make it a really, a really meaningful song to Max. So we took what information we had at that time and I reached out to management. We kind of discussed the idea of it. Not only did we have to work it out creatively and make sure it was something that Kate was confident that her work would be used in a positive way, in an impactful way, but we also had to negotiate a fee structure that would value the song correctly and for how many uses it was going to be, but also make it something that Netflix wouldn't be like, whoa, whoa, whoa we can't do that. We can't afford it. So it's kind of an interesting dance of how to make everybody happy. And we had a little bit of a delay due to COVID. And then top of 2022, it picked up full steam and we had more information, more scripts were written, and we were able to give Kate's management team more info on what was happening and the real scope of this full use. And I don't know if even they knew how big this was while we were just talking about it and talking about each use individually. I'm not sure any of us really knew 
how it was going to look when it all came together at the end. But yeah, the first half of this year was basically daily phone calls back and forth between me and Nora and me and the record label and us going to management and working this out. So it's all really, really exciting when it was released and we all got to see it on our television screens and see it come to life. It was really exciting. And I'm really happy for Kate Bush. You know, it's 40 years later, but finally, finally, she's getting the recognition she deserves because it's a great song. So when you first were crafting the email to her management, what did you think the percentage was your chance of actually getting the song? I wasn't sure. I was hopeful. I'm always hopeful that it's going to work out because we always want to say yes to productions and we always want it to be something positive for our songwriters. But I wasn't sure. Stranger Things is one of those shows that has such a great following and such a ravenous fan base. And I know this fan base is also music fans. I knew that the fans of Stranger Things were going to be excited about this song, but I wasn't sure if that was enough. And I was also a bit hesitant because we couldn't give her team all of the information because it didn't exist yet. I was nervous that that might be a hurdle and she needs to know all the information. We don't like to have any surprises where something's happening in the use that we weren't expecting that could be derogatory or violent or, you know, something that we need to be aware of. So I was nervous about those things, but also hopeful that she and her team would be kind of excited that this was a special one. This was not just an ordinary, you know, ordinary things are great, but this one was really, really special. And I hoped that they could see that through email without seeing it yet. Wow. So great. I assume you're a fan. Obviously you watch the show because you're constantly dealing with the creative side of it. This is a use of one song, but it's used for a long period of time. I was wondering if that was like, okay, we've got the clearance. Let's make the absolute most of this. Like, you're not going to play like 30 second snippet. It's going to recur. It's going to be in multiple scenes, story arcs. Am I right to assume that? Yeah. And that was part of the fee negotiation was we created a kind of deal that gave Netflix an incentive to use the song more times with the understanding that if they used it Two times, that's considered sort of a straightforward use. But if it was really going to be this continuous... Like theme. A theme, yeah. If it was going to be thematic, that we'd work something out. And we did. And it was something that Kate's team was happy with and we're happy with. And I'm glad it worked out. And I'm glad that there were so many uses so that it really became a, a thing. Yeah. And there's also an orchestral version of it. How did that work? The sort of combination of the two things. Did Kate Bush get to approve that? She did. Yeah, that one was tough and kind of came down to the wire. And my counterpart over at the label, Warner Brothers, her name's Twee. We really worked together on that one. And we also spoke every day, every day about this use. But Kate's team, the initial approval was for her original recording, of course. And when they came to us with this idea for this orchestral version, they had sent us kind of a rough cut. It wasn't a full orchestra recording. It was not MIDI, but a... Like a rough. Yeah. The team was kind of okay on it, but not super excited. And so we were kind of working out the details of that. And meanwhile, the flights were booked. They were going to London to record with the London Symphony Orchestra. And they were leaving in hours. And we were trying to get this approval. And we didn't quite have it yet. And production decided, well, the flights are booked. The musicians are ready. We're going to record it and see what happens. And maybe we won't get to use it. But I'm really glad they did because they recorded it. It really sounded great. And we were able to send the final version over to Kate's team. And ultimately it was approved. And I mean, it's a beautiful recording. And 
a great new way to revitalize this use so that viewers could hear it in a new way. So great. Why do you think that 80s music is so popular as a soundtrack to especially TV series? I think it's it's nostalgic. I think a lot of us that either were born in the 80s or grew up in the 80s or were teenagers in the 80s, it's a happy time to reflect back on. And I think the world in 2022 is hard and there's a lot of stuff going on. And I think it's comforting to look back at the 80s and think of the simplicity and the lack of social media and the lack of a constant news cycle and just go back to riding your bike at night and playing video games and hanging out with your friends is just a comforting, warm feeling. And I I think people are hungry for that. And music-wise, it was a great decade for music. And I think a lot of those songs bring back memories for people or just create a vibe that makes people happy and nostalgic. Yeah, I would agree. How rare is it that a running up that hill phenomenon happens where a song really just goes into the stratosphere from a use on a TV show? Really very rare. And it's something that happens organically. You can't create this kind of moment. It's not something that we can go out and get necessarily. It's kind of the perfect alignment of the stars of a great production, a great script, a great idea, a great episode combined with a great song and something that touches the viewers emotionally. And those two things coming together to just really build that emotion and something that people will remember or they'll go look up that song or think about it later, that it doesn't just disappear the minute that scene is over. It's something we're always striving for, but it's not necessarily easy to achieve. It's a lot of stars aligning. I love that. I was just going to ask something about that because I was thinking about what other songs have sort of had this trajectory. And I was thinking maybe like the Chasing Cars from Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, yeah. That was one of those songs. The Fray as well. on Yeah, it doesn't come around that often. But when it does, it's like really, really big. Do you have a memory when you were sort of forming your musical taste? Was there a movie music moment that really resonated with you or made an impact on you? Yeah. When I was a teenager, I was really into MTV's The Real World. And I remember one time it was the end of the season and everybody was moving out of the house and saying their goodbyes. And the song Closing Time started playing. And that was the first time I remember being aware of a music use in TV that connected with what was happening on TV. And that was the first time that I thought, oh, this isn't a random occurrence. A human being chose that song for this specific moment. And Mm -hmm. wow, what a cool job that is. And I didn't know what the job was. I didn't know if it was its own job or someone in production just picked the song. I didn't know that you had to get permission. I didn't know anything about it. But I remember understanding that a human being put two pieces of creative work if you want to call MTV's real world (laughs) creative work, put those two pieces together and made a moment. So that's probably the first time I remember thinking about this as a thing. Oh my God. Who was the band that did Closing Time? I think it's Semisonic. I'm sure Semisonic got a whole like $400 from MTV (laughs) for that use. (laughs) And it launched a career for you. But it stuck with me. Yes. That's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about Running Up That Hill becoming a legitimate radio hit. Because it is. It's the 12th most consumed song of the year. 
So that's across all audio platforms, including streaming, sales, radio, etc. It's nestled between Cold Heart by Elton John and Dua Lipa and Something in the Orange by Zach Bryan, which is actually kind of a new entry. Not Too Far Away is Drake, Bad Bunny, Harry Styles. Again, would I have ever imagined in 2022 that this would be a top 15 song? Like, no. How did it move from sync to overall consumption hit? Like it's being listened to on multiple platforms. It's on the radio. How did that happen? I mean, I guess it's from the fans. Stranger Things is obviously a widely watched Netflix series and a lot of people have their eyes on it. And I think syncs have a way of really making an impact of creating a new life for catalog artists and also breaking emerging artists. People are consuming television and film at record rates, and music is a big part of that. And you couldn't watch this season without hearing this song. And I think that creates nostalgia for people who are Kate Bush fans, and it creates curiosity for those who maybe had never heard that song before. People are shazamming while they're watching. People are going back to Spotify or wherever to stream the song. Radio was playing it all over the place. I think it was just an excitement. It was all happening at one time. Everyone was watching Stranger Things at one time. And yeah, Sync just has a way of connecting music to viewers. I think it really can help enhance the scene and people get excited about that. You know, since it was just Halloween and I saw that Max was a popular Halloween costume, and I'm sure there were many haunted houses or Halloween decorated houses that were probably playing running up that hill on a loop. Did you notice a tipping point personally when you were like, oh, this is actually way bigger than Stranger Things? Yeah, I mean, I was really excited for the release date because I wanted other people to see this. A lot of people watch Stranger Things, but I guess I didn't really realize how big it was going to be until it was released and people started talking about it and everyone was talking about it and how people wanted to know the story. As many syncs as I've done in my career, nobody's nobody's ever interviewed me about one before. So I think the interest in how this came about, it really sparked people's interest in what, what is sync? What is this? How does this work? So it wasn't until the episodes were released that I really understood how big this was. I knew it was going to be special. I didn't know how big it was going to be. And I'm so glad that we're still talking about it and that it's still being played on the radio. And I think Kate deserves every minute of this. And I'm so happy that she's getting the accolades for this song. It's a beautiful song. It's a timeless song. And I'm so glad that we're all listening to it now in 2022. Just a couple more things. Are you getting requests now for soundalikes? For Kate Bush soundalikes? Yeah. Like songs that sound like. Yeah. People are like, I want something like Running Up That Hill. A little bit. And I think productions are probably going to stay away from it for a minute since it's so closely tied now to Stranger Things. But we do have interest in the rest of her catalog. She has a vast (laughs) catalog of other songs. So we are seeing requests for other parts of her catalog. We would all love to have another Kate Bush Stranger Things moment. Like I said, you can't manufacture this, but having an impactful sync is what people are really looking for. Yeah, I think there's renewed interest definitely across the industry. Well, last thing, I kind of wanted to get a little bit more forward looking. What are you working on now? Okay, you've had this huge success. We're coming into 2023. What's that look like for you? Honestly, after all this happened, it was kind of just back to the grind. 
We clear a lot of sink uses all day long, and we're so thankful that there are so many productions now that it's beyond just your television, that it's streaming and internet and everything. We're all just really busy clearing for everything. For any new show that's coming up, we're on top of, and we're always trying to find opportunities for our songwriters. You know, we would love to get the catalog hits out there and get them a revived life or new attention. We love to get our emerging artists out into projects and have people hear it. Our goal is to have people hear the songs. So yeah, it was kind of just back to the grind. And again, just for some context, Sony Music Publishing is home to like the Queen catalog, right? Mm -hmm. We hear a lot of Queen (laughs) in advertising and everywhere, you know, movies, TV, etc. You guys also have Olivia Rodrigo, Ed Sheeran, Marvin Gaye, Niall Rogers. Like this is a very deep deep catalog. Yeah, it's a great catalog. Favorite part of my job is listening to music all day long. I listen to anything and everything that comes through and our our catalog is just full of wonderful gems and classic songs everyone knows and a lot of new things that maybe you haven't heard yet, but hopefully you will soon. I love it. Well, Amy, congrats on this honor. Thank you. On an amazing year that you've had. Bravo to you, to Kate Bush, to the team, to Sony Music Publishing. And thanks for being with us on Strictly Business. Thanks so much. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with Ricky Reed. Through the newly launched Songwriter Assistance Program, Sony Music Publishing offers wellness solutions for its entire global roster, including access to free, confidential counseling services. Sony Music Publishing songwriters and composers can connect with a dedicated, licensed therapist at no cost to address stress, anxiety, depression, grief, family and relationship matters, and more. With songwriter assistance, songwriters also have access to around-the-clock resources and support for daily life. From researching childcare options, locating a pet sitter, to budgeting a major life event, songwriter assistance has your back. If you are a Sony Music Publishing songwriter and would like to learn more, please visit sonymusicpub.com. And we're back to Jem Oswad's conversation with Ricky Reed. Here in this lovely studio in Echo Park, Los Angeles, with Ricky Reed, Variety's Hitmakers Producer of the Year. Congratulations, sir. Thank, thank you so much. Yes, this is largely specifically for Lizzo and About Damn Time, but looking at your track record, Halsey, Camila Cabello, uh, John Batiste, Leon Bridges, 21 Pilots, SZA, Marin Morris, Bomba Stereo. Let me see. I don't see any death metal. I don't see any polka. <laughs> I don't see any <laughs> Tuvan throat singers, so step up. <laughs> all right. First of all, tell me about how the song came together about damn time. We'll start there and then we'll go back. You know, we were in that classic scenario where we had been working on this album, the Lizzo album, for a couple of years, and we knew we needed one more record that could not only be sort of a thesis statement for the album, but... Lizzo needed a declaration, so to speak, going into this new year and wanted her to like give everybody a warm hug. We wanted her to address that things are not as easy or as fun maybe as they felt a couple years ago, but to still give people some joy and some hope. So I went in, I believe it was the first or second week of January of this year, went in with Blake Slacken, 
And he and I jammed on a couple of ideas. And I believe it started with him playing the piano chords that would end up being our pre-chorus. These guys. He was playing a bum, bum, bum. And as soon as he did that, I then heard this chord. This was an E flat minor nine. Of course. Really interesting about that chord is it doesn't have a third in it. Now, usually the third in a chord is what determines if it sounds major or sounds minor. If you omit that third entirely, you get a chord that you're not quite sure how to feel about. It feels tough and edgy and serious, but you know, you don't know, is this a happy feeling or a sad feeling? It doesn't spell that out for you. And building the song around a chord like that, to me, was going to be the vehicle for Lizzo to give us this kind of message. Why would an ambiguous chord like that result in such a happy and positive and confident song? I think that the song is happy and positive and confident, but I think the song also says, look, we've been going through it and we're still going through it. There's a lot of challenges out here right now. And I thought that having the song based around an instrumental that just felt happy wouldn't be doing the song justice, but also an instrumental that just felt dark wouldn't be doing the song justice. So once we had that chord, that's when I sat down and laid in the bass groove and then the guitar grew. But as soon as that bass groove hit, Blake and I screamed and we knew we had a record. And just from the instrumental, you just know with some instrumentals, you've got a record. And with that, we got Lizzo into the studio and she brought her magic to it and wrote the song that is what it is today. Did you just have the groove or did you already have the chorus and the bridge and all that? We had a pretty good idea of what this would sound like musically at the end. We didn't have a bridge, but, you know, we had that verse groove. We had the pre-chorus. And then coming back to the chorus, that was all laid down. Mm -hmm. That was there. That was there and ready. But as it always is with Lizzo, Lizzo is the only one that can write Lizzoisms. We had to have her come through and to bring what she brings to a song. And to be totally frank, getting the lyric and melody right was the longest part. It was a probably a couple months of day in, day out, talking about just getting that message that she wanted to convey, that we wanted to convey, just getting that just right. I mean, it almost seems like a simple message. You wouldn't think that that much would have gone into it, but simplicity can sometimes be the hardest and most laborious thing to get across. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly it. It's hard to get a simple message just right. And that can take time. After all the, the hard work and everything, we were really, really proud that we landed it right where we wanted it to be. Well, and without it getting overcomplicated or over muddy, considering everything that went into it. Completely. I mean, there are so many alternate versions. I tried countless musical moments this way and that. I mean, the bridge, there's, there's probably, you know, at least a handful of different fully produced bridges that I made. And to land where it is, we had to just continue being comfortable with, okay, it's not good enough. Cut it. Mm -hmm. Cut it. I worked on this new bridge for five days, five full days in the studio cut it. It's wow. not cutting it, you know? Is it a totally different bridge or just a different arrangement? No, a totally different bridge. I had days where I would put together a whole different chord progression. Maybe a melody could be like this, uh, like a vocoder solo on it, <laughs> little bass lick. Let's try this drum fill and then like go through with Blake and Lizzo and be like, it's not good enough. Cut it. 
know? We did a lot of that to get it right. How do you keep perspective when you're working on something for that long and going through so many different things? And Yeah, I mean, that's probably the greatest sort of unspoken challenge of all this is to keep track of what's good, what's sort of like fundamentally good and exciting about something when you're very close to it. And I think the way that you know is you have to really, really stay in touch with your body and keep an eye on what feels genuinely good and when you can feel like you have anxiety forming or things are feeling crunchy. I have to do a lot of stepping back and listening to it from the top and just listening to, does this feel good? Does this make me want to move or is it not? That feeling in the body is the ultimate decider. Cook up a lot of things with your brain, (laughs) with your intentions, but it it has to go through the body. How do you get distance? Do you just listen to something else? Do you leave it alone for a while? Oh my gosh. There's a more serious answer to this question, but I'll give you the silly answer, which is cool. (laughs) There was a, a, a point in time where I was waking up in the middle of the night and I would wake up and the song was playing in my head, like a, a verse we had been working on or a bridge lyric or something, like literally looping. And I was like laying in bed one night. It's like, what's well, like a palate cleanse I could do just because if I can get this out of my head for a second, I can get back to sleep or I can do whatever I got to do. And the thing that felt like the most far off thing that I could imagine that would just like clear my head was the opening guitar riff to My Own Worst Enemy by Lit. If I was laying in bed and can't sleep with about damn time looping in my head, I would just go. And it worked? Yeah. Is it true that you guys did 100 to 120 songs for this album, recorded in part and all that? Is that true? And where are those songs? Are they here? Like looking under a couch cushion? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the number of songs I myself did with her, because I didn't, you know, I didn't produce the whole thing. Probably we did maybe 20 or 30 Mm -hmm. all totaled. And I would say when I think that a song has potential, I'm going to take it as far as I can towards completion. You know, Mm -hmm. sound great, feel great. Even if nobody's heard it yet, I want to get it to that place when we play it for our label partner at Atlantic, et cetera. But she is the hardest working musician I've ever seen in the studio. The countless days and hours of experimentation, trying things, being comfortable, going back in and being like, let me see if I can beat that verse. Let me see if we can beat that melody in the chorus. It's just so admirable, so impressive to watch. So no, there are many, many more songs that didn't make the album. Will they be heard someday? I don't know. Maybe she'll put out some kind of box set or you know, Lizzo from the vault or something. But for right now, this was the statement that made sense to her was this album. No, and it's a very cohesive and consistent album with, you know, every song seems to have a message and those messages are largely positive and, and, you know, self-helpful in a lot of ways. Was that something she was going for? Oh, 100%. She's very aware of the impact, the power that her words have. Even before she had a massive podium like she does now, She was always so thoughtful about what's going to be the takeaway here. I think that she thinks of, we think of her music as in large part as like a service, like to fans and to people and to the world, especially on this album with so many people listening, we'd have like a great song and she would say, yeah, this is a great song, but the negativity in this is not something I think the world needs right now. It's off. 
And those kind of small decisions day by day lead up to an album that that's why it feels cohesive. That's why the messaging feels so strong and so specific going through it is she's taking stock of that once a day. She has her songs in some kind of playlist, listening, listening, and we're having those conversations on a daily basis. Isn't it hard? And I know it's not your record. But isn't it hard to let go sometimes of something you've created or worked on that you love or you think is great and the artist is just saying, no, I don't want that? Do you argue for those things or are you just like, it's your thing, whatever you want? Oh, I argue passionately for those things. Yeah. To be a great collaborator, songwriter, record producer, I think you have to put your full heart into it. You have to relate on some level to the music. And naturally, there's going to be decisions where the artist and my opinions differ. I know where to draw the line. The artist is going to be the one singing this live for the next two and a half years. It's not going to be me. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the one that has to do interview after interview, answer questions about something. What was your inspiration for this? So it's very important to let their final decisions be sacred mm-hmm. as such. But before the decision is final... <laughs> I'm in there just trying to not only be, I think, an advocate for great records, but also trying to encourage them to be brave, to be bold, and to put out music that is going to serve them well. Do you think, just from the artists you've worked with, and and I'm not talking about Lizzo specifically, are artists often not the best judges of their own work? I know that sounds like a really unfair statement, but a lot of the time I hear about artists like saying, no, 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 that song is stupid. No, don't, don't play that song. Right. And everybody else says, no, it's great. And right, they right. might eventually cave and the song goes on to be a global smash. Yeah. No, I mean, what's really interesting about that is that there was a time when the sort of, I'm using air quotes for mm-hmm. people who can't see me, the, the objectively good pop song sort of ruled overall. Yeah, all these different stories and legends of artists, you know, not wanting to put out you know, the song that was their best song and then they put it out and it goes crazy, you know. But we're in a space today where the music is only as important as the artists as people. Their fans connecting with them through a variety of means on this really personal level. And people can, I think, can subconsciously feel if an artist loves the song they just put out or if they're getting their arm twisted behind their back a little bit. So I think we're in an era now where artists know what they love. They know what they're going to bust their ass for promotion-wise. And that can now, I believe, outweigh sometimes the power of your perfect lyric melody that everyone at the label loves. We're seeing more and more songs like that not perform how we thought they were going to. And the strange sort of like left of center record that no one in the building thought had any potential, but the artist loved, they teased it on TikTok, the fans felt the energy, and all of a sudden, those are the songs actually racing up the charts. Is what you're talking about the fact that with social media and artists being able to relate to their fans and all that, it's almost like the music is a smaller piece of the whole than it used to be? You know what I mean? That's exactly what I'm saying. I think the music has got to be great. It's not like you can, that it can take a step back. But I do think that so much of the fan experience now is like rooting for their artists on more of a human level, connecting with them on a human level. Loving the music that comes with that. But part of that is the connection. I think that's a lot bigger than it used to be. You've got a remarkably musically diverse background. 
enormously so, unusually so. What do you attribute that to? I would attribute that to the fact that I love music. I have always loved music. I was raised on all kinds of different genres. I grew up in the Bay Area where you have kids listening to hip hop right next to the punkers and the metalheads. And I grew up in the middle of all that. You have Gilman Street scene happening. You also have this massive Bay Area hip hop explosion from, say, Digital Underground when I was very young to E-40 and Too Short. That's all happening and Vogue in Oakland. It's all happening at the same time. I grew up with all that, but I don't think that's actually why I love to work across genre. I like to work across genre because I like to meet different kinds of people. For me, the music is sort of a vehicle, so to speak, that just allows me to meet interesting people and to learn about them and to make new friends. That's why the job will never get old. If I can continue developing new relationships, meeting people, having them over to my house party, going to their house party, like that's what it's really about for me. Is there a history of musical talent in your family? There's a lot of players in my family. My great grandmother was a pianist. My mom played a little growing up. I have an uncle who's a pianist. We have a handful of musicians, but I think more so than that, what really rubbed off on me on both sides of my family is we have a lot of people that were independently employed, started their own businesses. It's the sort of entrepreneurial spirit and the just go-getter from both sides of my family, I think has had a bigger impact on me than necessarily the musical upbringing. Although my mom will kill me if I don't say the fact that she raised me on all kinds of incredible music as a child. Like what? What made the biggest impact? When I really think about it, the records that she loved were left of center with pop appeal. I think I've never thought about that until this exact minute because she showed me a lot of Motown and great soul and R&B records that were more up the middle. But she also, I remember her saying, Eddie Kendricks, he was in The Temptations, but he did this proggy, interesting stuff after that. And I was like, oh, really? She was the first person to put me on to, yes, starting with the Fragile album and then Close to the Edge. She scoffed at the early Beatles, but put me on to the late Beatles. You know what I'm saying? Like Houses of the Holy, all these records that are still have pop appeal, but they have some innate challenge in them. And especially what I was listening to nonstop growing up with her was the sort of early 80s LA sound. I mean, I could recite the lyrics of every Steely Dan album to you front to back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Michael McDonald, Genesis, the sort of end of the Peter Gabriel, early Phil Collins Genesis, all that was just on repeat in my house. So in a way, when I think about my musical output and the things that just interest me at a core level, there is a one-to-one -one connection to what she raised me on. I mean, and those are very cool and very diverse tastes. I mean, for one's parents. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> I know you originally were signed as an artist to Epic, I believe. Mm -hmm. Was there a band that led up to that? or? Yeah, so it was only until, or up until about 2013 or so, you know, from the point when I was like 16 in high school, it was all bands. It was some version of that band coming out of high school turned into a more sort of like heavy-duty prog punk thing that I was doing. And then I was doing that through my 20s because we actually with my high school band had flirted with some major label deal offers and stuff. And In high school? 
Yeah. Uh, wow. Just out of high school, we got a couple offers and we were advised to turn them down and th that band sort of fell apart. So in my angst, again, I started this sort of, yeah, proggy or punk outfit in my 20s. And then as that was picking up steam on the side to blow off steam, rather, I started this kind of experimental solo thing called Wallpaper, which was some sort of cross between like, you know, the postal service thing that was happening at least how I fancied it, like the very first like Tom York Eraser album was sort of this like glitchy, dark pop thing. But then I went back to college and I wanted to meet girls and play at house parties. So the wallpaper projects, you know, little by little started to have more bass in it. And this is also when the hyphy thing is happening in the Bay Area. So it's the resurgence of E-40 and this like Bay Area hip hop sound of the mid 2000s is going crazy. I loved it. Meanwhile, I'm also studying under a Ghanaian drum master at UC Berkeley and learning about West African dance drumming and everything. So in the middle of all that, wallpaper starts to become this bass-heavy party rocking thing. And the satire gets a bit confused and it starts to just become this like party rocking pop hip-hop thing. And that was what eventually brought me to Epic Records. And you had been writing songs this whole time since those early records. Mm -hmm. It looks like, at least on paper, that around the same time you got signed as an artist, your career as a songwriter started taking off. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I got signed as an artist 2010, 2011. It's funny because I really didn't see that record deal coming. I was sort of hitting a ceiling in the Bay Area. You know, we were headlining as the biggest venues that we could, selling them out. We were on the cover of all the local zines and stuff. And I was still working like a dishwashing job at the Gap corporate cafe, you know, like and my band was like this popping band and I still was like broke. So I started coming to L.A. once a month to see if I could put together a career maybe as a producer songwriter for other artists. So I'm in L.A. working on that career but that is my focus. And I'm keeping wallpaper going and putting out songs and just trying to see if I can just get a damn bite anywhere. And that's when the epic signing kind of comes out of the blue. I met Tricky Stewart and L.A. Reid on a Friday at 9 p.m. And by Sunday at 4 p.m., I was signed to Epic Records. I mean, it <laughs> happened in less than 48 hours. And as that process of making my first album for Epic and touring and, and getting that first album out and not having the success that I expected to come with it, it was in that time period, in that process that I was like, I got to make sure I keep firing off a few things for other people. So a song for Far East Movement, song for CeeLo, and then a song that I had made intended for uh, Missy Elliott. Somebody on my team came back to me a couple months later and said, hey, that song you made for Missy, Jason Derulo actually cut it. And I was like, oh, interesting. And they were like, yeah, it's cool. Check it out. And it was, and they sent it to me and it was Talk Dirty. And I was like, oh. Yeah, this is good. We'll see what happens with it. And that song coming out, that changed my life and it changed the course of my career. You must have had a publisher working with you fairly actively at the time. Who Was it Sony at the time? Yes, I was published by Boardwalk Entertainment slash Sony ATV, I believe from before the Epic record deal happened. So they were working on my behalf. I had a great small family of people that were all cranking on my behalf during this time. And I think it was really formative for me because my whole career I had to face a lot of rejection. 
I was just clawing to get any door open I could. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and was lucky that something clicked. What were the next big successes in the, I guess, three years between Talk Dirty and meeting Lizzo in 2016? I never thought of them sort of as a season of mm -hmm. my career, but they really were. So 2013 is when Talk Dirty happens. You're in demand, right? Yeah. Suddenly, my manager who had been with me up until this point, he passed away at the beginning of 2013, was diagnosed with leukemia. And Larry Wade, who had been part of the company that was publishing me, stepped in to help with management. And at the end of 2013, when Talk Dirty starts to look like it might become a real hit, he says wisely, hey, let's take a break from the artist project for just a second. You have doors flying open for you on the side. You've never had that in your career. Let's just see what we can get. Let's go back in with Jason Derulo. I brought an instrumental that I had made with a crazy traveling band of weirdos called Start From Infinity. Brought an instrumental into Derulo and we made Wiggle. Only a few months after Talk Dirty started to look like a hit. So we have Talk Dirty and Wiggle. And that same crew, we go to a beach house in Oxnard and we write Fireball on the roof of this beach house. I had just met Pitbull's manager at a BMI Awards a week previous. Just march into his office and say, we got Pitbull's next single. Fireball goes for him. So we get a quick little one, two, three punch, get a fifth harmony single off. But at this point, again, to my manager, Larry Wade's credit, we're looking at the landscape and it's people are starting to come to me asking for pop songs with a big brass moment. Talk dirty, saxophone, wiggle, flute drop, fireball, saxophone drop, this fifth harmony song, a big trombone moment. And it's like, oh, wow, I am actively burrowing myself into a pigeonhole. We got to move. So Larry says, you know that band that you've been sharing festival stages with, 21 Pilots? We should see if you can do a song or two for them. And I'm like, dude, I'm down. I mean, I came up producing my band's rock records. Like, let's try it out. He also gets an inquiry from a Colombian band called Bombasterio. And I was like, are you interested in this? And I was like, hell yeah. So that, to me, is a moment where the thing starts to really open up and change. And the career that I have now really starts because the 21 Pilots success, also working with Icona Pop, these are Atlantic artists. And the people from Atlantic bring me in first. Brandon Davis introduces me to Pete Gambarg and then both of them to Craig Kalman. And they say, have you ever thought about doing a joint venture deal with a label? Have you ever thought about a staff producer role? And I had just seen Tricky Stewart who was kind of a mentor to me, signed me to Epic. I had just seen him leave Epic. He was a producer by trade. He had a job in an office. And my words, not his, but from the outside, it seemed like he wasn't as happy in the office as he was in the studio. And I was a little worried about that. So when everybody was around me saying, do you want to do a joint venture? Do you want to have a record label? I was pretty hesitant. And again, great manager, Larry Wade, he said, give it a shot. They're going to you get a little check. All this means is that if we find something great, we have to bring it to them and no other major label. It's going to last a couple of years. If we don't find anything, no big deal. And if we do, great. It was like, fine. Okay, fine. Probably four or five months after we signed the deal, my booking agent, a guy named Matt Morgan, who's now at UTA, 
He was at CA at the time. He told Larry, I think you guys should check out this artist that I'm booking. She's selling out small clubs. She's amazing live. Her name is Lizzo. Larry flew out to see her at Terminal 5 in New York opening for Slater Kinney. He was blown away. And he said, you got to meet this girl. So she flew from Minneapolis out to here for just a couple days. We got familiar. And our first day, we made a song called Worship. I took Worship home to my then probably fiance, I guess she was at that time. And one of my best friends from here in L.A., Bradley Herring, who's now the president of Nice Life. And I played them worship and said, we can't not sign this artist, right? Listen to her sing. That was the beginning with Lizzo, 2016. Mm -hmm. And you guys just jumped right into collaborating as well? Yeah, I mean, we knew we had to make records. She was getting those opportunities that money can't buy. Being invited to things, the press looks, felt like the world needed her, wanted her. So we started working aggressively just making the best songs we can make. I mean, the second song we made was good as hell. Trying to get her sound, trying to figure it all out. But from 2016 to 2019, even though she was growing steadily that whole time, she and I had thought that it was going to happen faster. There was a lot of roadblocks, a lot of challenges. There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in that time. But we just took this approach that we're not going to, as Brad puts it, we're not going to cross over the artist. It's going to be a spillover. She's going to get so big in her lane that the mainstream can't ignore her. And that's where she was when Cuz I Love You, her debut album, came out. But then we had that stroke of luck of the Truth Hurts sync a week after the album came out, which did not have Truth Hurts on it, mind you, because Truth Hurts had come out two years before. But that spark... It was like a spark landing on a pile of dried out plywood that we've been <laughs> dumping gasoline on for three years. What was it the sink? Someone great. But the movie had this incredible scene in it where two best friends are rapping an entire verse of Truth Hurts to each other in the kitchen. One like cracks open like a 40 or something on the table. It's amazing. It perfectly captures the essence of Lizzo fans loving her music, connecting over her music. It was a perfect sync. And in the early days of TikTok and old songs going viral, it was kind of a special story because now we're used to this. Song from 2014 just took off on TikTok and now it's a hit. The band reunited. This kind of thing happens a lot now, but it was a novel thing when that happened with Truth Hurts. So it made a lot of noise. Do you remember how the sync happened? Because that's the kind of sync that people dream of every minute of every day. All I remember is that Larry, again, to his credit, had some connection with introducing the director or somebody connected to the director to Lizzo. Nice Life Recording Company, the company that was forced into form to create this JV with Atlantic. Sometimes people ask, what do we do exactly? What's our company do? And for our independent artists, we oftentimes look like a semi-traditional independent record label. But in a situation where we're like with Lizzo or another artist of ours, the Marias, where we're partnered with a huge company like Atlantic Records that has literally 100 times the amount of like staff, resources, everything that, that we have, people wonder what we do. But things like that are exactly what we do. We just keep an eye out for these interesting relationships, these connections with people, these places to plant seeds that can sometimes become career catalysts. 
And a lot of them move things along in these incremental ways. Sometimes something like that happens. And look, Lizzo was going to be the superstar that she is today any way we had to get there. It's not like had that not happened, she wouldn't be where she is. We know where she was headed. But our job as a nimble, creative, strange company is to be out there in the world and look for those connections and try to make them. Well, since we're talking about the label, tell me more about some of the artists on it. We have our flagship artists that we've been speaking about, Lizzo, that we're a partner with Atlantic Records on. We also have another partnership with Atlantic Records for an amazing band from L.A. called The Marias. You could call them an indie band, but they play more akin to an R&B group. The singer Maria Zardoya sings in English and Spanish. When I first saw them live, it felt closer to Sade than to indie rock. We also have a partnership with Warner Records for an incredible young artist named John Robert. I met John Robert when he was 16, and... The first time he played and sang for me, I was blown away. And my first question for him was, who introduced you to Jeff Buckley? Because it's just uncanny. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who that is. And I said, I'm in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, please. We also have artists that are signed to us independently. So there's no major label involved. Junior Mesa, a, another sort of indie act that blurs the lines between psychedelia and soul out of Bakersfield. We have an artist named St. Panther, who is a songwriter, producer, singer. I don't even know how to describe her. Hip-hop, soul, R&B, even dabbles in reggaeton. She's amazing from Orange County. We also have our latest signing to the label, an artist named Stevie. She is from East L.A. County. She plays cumbia. It's woven in with bits of Mexican regional reggaeton. How do you manage all this? Label, own publishing company, family? Do you have a family? I have a five-year-old daughter and twin three-year-old boys. Oh, so that's easy. The it's mellow, yeah. Itself. It's yeah, chill yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're making all of these records. How, how do you manage this? The short answer is that I stick to my routines. I listen to my body. I used to say yes to anything that felt pretty good. I got to say no to more things. I live and die by my routine. And as long as I stick to my routines and I stick to my hours and I'm saying no enough, then I can do all this and, and feel okay. But creativity doesn't follow routine. Like what happens if it's two in the morning and you get like a great hook or a great melody in your head? Do you just say, nope, nope, I'll remember it? Because a lot of people, you have to chase those things and grab them when they happen. You do. When they come, I chase them down. I also am a believer in the science that says that we're at our most creative when we wake up and it goes downhill all day. I love to be in the studio at 9 a.m. with a giant coffee. You know, if I can convince the other songwriters and producers <laughs> to be there with me then too, that's great. And look, when we made Gold Digger Sound, the Leon Bridges album, that was an album where I was looking at what was going on with Leon and I realized, Leon, we've never met nighttime Leon you always talk about going out after the studio and dinner with so-and-so and party with so-and-so I've never been in the studio with this guy so that was a situation where we had to make a nighttime album where we started every session at eight and things got juicy at one or two you do have those and I'll never close myself off from those but when I'm in the day-to-day -day of running a record label 
running a publishing company and producing and songwriting for other artists. If I can control it, I'll be on my routines. So what's coming up? What's up next that you can talk about? Because I'm sure there's top secret products going on. Right now, I am preparing for 2023. We have a couple of artists on the label that feel poised to take a big, big, big step. So it's my job to be giving them as much TLC, as much time and energy, whether that's producing records or just listening and giving feedback and being an emotional support. I need to give all these unknown or virtually unknown artists on my label the same time that I would give a superstar because that's the promise I make to them when we sign a deal together. Thanks for tuning in to Variety Strictly Business. This episode was edited by Jessica Chalvoy. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes featuring conversations with media movers and shakers. Also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Through the newly launched Songwriter Assistance Program, Sony Music Publishing offers wellness solutions for its entire global roster, including access to free, confidential counseling services. Sony Music Publishing songwriters and composers can connect with a dedicated, licensed therapist at no cost to address stress, anxiety, depression, grief, family and relationship matters, and more. With songwriter assistance, songwriters also have access to around-the-clock resources and support for daily life. From researching childcare options, locating a pet sitter, to budgeting a major life event, songwriter assistance has your back. If you are a Sony Music Publishing songwriter and would like to learn more, please visit sonymusicpub.com.